0: uri da atta yo ik kara uwa wa inga pe ne ya Kiarato they shall not grow old as we that are left grow old. Age shall not weary them, nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we will remember them.
1: No e e mai hare mai, no mai kaki mai, ti na kaito, ti na kaito, ti na kaito katoa. Welcome again. You're with Maraya Rakuraku, and this is Te Ahi Radio New Zealand National's weekly fix of everything Kopapa Māori. This is our NZX special. Today the last post sounded out at dawn ceremonies around the country. I was one of thousands gathered at the Wellington Cenotaph. And around about now Kepa Hi Punga will be on site at Anzac Cove in Gallipoli, Turkey. He's a young fella with what is looking like a pretty bright future who wrote an essay about the relevance of World War One on New Zealand identity and with a number of secondary school students scored a trip to Turkey for his efforts. I spent time with Kepa and three generations of his whanau recently that included his maternal grandfather, Huani Hipango, grand-aunt Hari Benavides, and six-year-old Mere Paia at their Fano homestead, Or Mitsi, in Taihape recently. We're sitting around their kitchen table. I learned about the connection between another of their relations, the first Māori fighter pilot, Porokoru Pātapu John Pohe and American actor, Steve McQueen. But you had no idea that a Maori man from Taihapi was involved in the great escape. Well stay tuned, you'll hear more. Two Maori have received the Victoria Cross, the highest military honour for anyone serving within the Commonwealth. There's Willie Apiata, everyone's pretty much heard of him. He received it in two thousand seven for bravery while under fire in Afghanistan in two thousand four. Moana Nui Akiwa Narimu is the other one, who received the award posthumously for his actions in 1943 during the Second World War. We have archival recordings of the award ceremony and an eyewitness account of the return of the 28th Māori Battalion to Aotearoa in 1946. I'm Mariah Rakraku. this is our ANZAC special on Te Ahika here on Radio New Zealand National. Kepa is a Year 13 7th form student at Oanganui Collegiate. He's a deputy head boy, and he is one of 21 students who have been awarded an opportunity of a lifetime, really. You're going to Gallipoli, Kepa. no. How did that come about?
2: Well, I was approached by one of the teachers at school, and he recognised that my strength in academics was in history and English, so he asked me to write something and put forward an essay to Veterans Affairs, so I did that, and yeah, it came as a shock to be selected to go overseas, but it's very humbling and I'm very privileged.
1: And what that means is that you, as well as 20 other students, are travelling to Anzac Cove to be there on Anzac Day.
2: Yes, that's right.
1: Now, your essay, um, the topic of it was using Gallipoli as a case study to illustrate the impact of World War One on New Zealand society. Now, <laughs> you know, that's meaty. How did you manage to put down everything you felt about something into, what, 2,000 words?
2: Uh, uh, it took a lot of research, and I had to chop and change things a lot, but, yeah, it's. I just drew on the fact that World War I, and particularly Gallipoli, helped our country to develop a national sense of identity, and it was also the catalyst for the unification between Māori and Pākehā at the time, following, I suppose, a century of hostile conflicts and, you know, surrounding the Treaty of Waitangi and settling Pākehā and all those issues. So, yeah.
1: Now, we're sitting in the lounge of your great-grandmother's house, and... As I was walking through the hallway and there are photos of various men in military uniform, so am I right to assume that your whānau has had quite a lot of involvement in the military?
2: Uh, no. Yes, and that, that contributed to well, why I wrote the essay. I was inspired by the fact that my whānau has had strong ties to the military and has contributed in previous wars and conflicts and just to the services itself so uh, that I thought it'd be a sort of fitting tribute to them to write an essay and submit it to Veterans Affairs and I'm just extremely privileged to have been selected like I said before and it's uh, I suppose it's dedicated to all those members of my final who sort of made sacrifices and contributed particularly my uncle johnny Uncle Johnny Pohe and my uncle wada, who were both killed in their service
1: now Uncle Johnny Pohe was the pilot who fought in the Battle of britain, and that 's your great grandmother 's brother
2: anna yeah he was he was oh, particularly inspiring he was the first maori Pilot, and he—he wow. he was also part of. You may have heard of the Great Escape. Yeah. So he was one of the two New Zealanders uh, to be involved in that. But unfortunately, he was captured after a few days and was executed on Hitler's orders. So. And yeah. the
1: house that we're in at the moment is the house that he was brought up in.
2: no, uh, yeah, and you can sort of feel that atmosphere. There's pictures of pictures of him all around the place, and. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of, I suppose, fitting in a way to do the interview here as well.
1: And then if we just move down, I mean, your um, uncle that you mentioned, Uncle Wata?
2: He was Lieutenant Colonel in the Army, and unfortunately about 10 years ago he was killed in service over in Singapore.
1: Koru Pantapu Pohe, John Pohe, became widely known to the wider New Zealand public when producers Julian Arahanga and Maramena Roderick made a documentary, Tūra That was a while ago. I interviewed Arahanga about the project a couple of years back. Pohe was the first Māori fighter pilot for the Royal New Zealand Air Force, who then went on to become the first Māori flight trainer. Now, I'm no expert on the operations of planes during that time, but from my research, seems Johnny, um, I'm going to call him that from now on because I feel I know him, his daredevil spirit was well-suited to flying. Of the two world wars that Māori have participated in, it's been the Second World War campaign that has had the most devastating effect on our population. That's still felt today, actually, because when you look at it, a whole generation of men never returned. Māori whānau everywhere have stories of how they learned someone had died. One of my friends from Mitimithi told me how her nanny received a telegram informing her her son had been killed and then took off screaming down the beach where everyone at the marae could hear her. The late entertainer Howard Morrison described how his whānau at Ohinemutu Rotorua would draw their and hide in the houses when the poster van arrived in 1914 to Fatarangi Ropoama Pohe and Honoria Pohe. He was brought up in Taihape on their whānau property, or miti, at Tsurangarere, where I spent a day with three generations of his Farno, his nephew and niece, siblings Hari Benavides and Huani hipango, and Mukopona Keepahi pango, more about him later, and six year old Merepaya. While the history of the 28th Māori Battalion during the Second World War is well documented, Thanks largely to the work of Monte Suta and others, Māori involvement in other parts of the military isn't as well known. Well, maybe not to us, the general public. <laughs> it is known by those directly affected, eh, like the Fano. i I'm now sitting around the kitchen table with Hari Benavides and huani Hipango, who are the kraua and the great aunt of Kipa Hipango. Now, you too must feel very proud about what your mukapuna has done here, that you say.
3: Yes, I do. In this respect, when you read what he has written, it's fairly complex. And for a young person of that age, it becomes not only an eye-opener, but it can blow one's mind away.
4: Yeah. Oh, naturally, I'm very, very proud of what Kipper has done and achieved and what he's written. It's an amazing tale of what he's talking about in the um, essay. And we're very, very proud of him. And We thought especially of our mother, who had a great deal to do with Kipper when he was little. She would be so proud of him, absolutely.
1: And, uh, you know, in my conversation with Kipper. I mean, for want of a better way of describing it, your whanau has certainly made its sacrifices for war.
3: Well, yes, our families have, and it goes right back to World War II, but we can go further into Gallipoli in the First World War as well. But in respect of both Hari and I, coming back to the World War II... We have a closer affiliation due to the mere fact that I was alive at the time when our Uncle Johnny, And
4: that was John Pohare? Johnny was our mother's brother, and he was the first Māori pilot, and he went away to the uh, Second World War. And he ended up being a prisoner in Starlock of Three and was a member of the ill-fated Great Escape, because he was one of the 50 that was murdered for, under the orders of Hitler. From the, the records and the uh, research that we have, it was written that he was the first Māori pilot and he was the first to go away uh, into the training. He, not the, he wasn't the first to go away to the training, but he was one of the first that ever graduated from the um, New Zealand Flying School. And then he went away, he became a flying officer, and um, ended up teaching the poems, how to fly planes. Now, of course, it's not
1: news to you guys about John here, but it was to Aotearoa largely until a couple of years ago when a documentary was made about it.
3: Yes. One of the things that perhaps one is always mindful of, following the execution of our uncle, there was quite a traumatic feeling amongst our kuia me koro. And so it became one of a personal situation particularly with our whānau and so it was never publicised only until such time when the documentary was then thought and considered. And ironically the one who actually did the documentary was also whānau from Ohakune
4: Um, The making, when uh, Sonny approached us to make the documentary... That's Julian Arahanga. Julian Arahanga. When he came and approached us to make the documentary, um, it was uh, an opportunity for us as a family, really, we discovered during the process of the making and the filming, because we had our family members who had the opportunity to be a part of it in playing the roles of our grandmother, our grandfather, our nanny and koro, and the sisters as Johnny's siblings, and those were our nieces. It was an opportunity for us to actually live what they had gone through. We had never actually done that before. And in the filming here in the kitchen, when they did the filming of Nanny and Kudor reading the letters from Johnny, and she's sitting in front of the, uh, the old stove here, the wood-burning stove, um, when that finished, Mariana, our cousin Mariana, who played the role of Nanny, and I both hugged each other, and we actually cried because we... Felt that Nanny and them were here and that they were a part of it. And it still makes me, even now, feel quite emotional about it because we didn't fully understand until that day the
5: The real um, pain mm.
4: that they had gone through and and the, the sense of loss. And we understood then what our mothers had gone through. And particularly in the case of our mother, for Juani and I, our mother always talked about family history. It wasn't a deliberate thing, was it, Juani? She spoke about it in her everyday life. She talked about things that they did as a matter of process when she was cooking. You know, we knew what they had for breakfast, because when she was cooking breakfast, she would say, well... Remember kuro? Uh, Kuro liked boiled eggs. He um, had, uh, they would either be boiled or buggered if they weren't exactly, you know, like two-minute eggs. (laughs) So we knew all about these things and about Johnny when she was pressing clothes, that Johnny wouldn't let our grandmother press his clothes, because she didn't do it properly. He had to do it himself. They were very fussy and, in a way, I suppose, pedantic.
3: Well, pedantic was one thing, but he was also very immaculate in his dress and appearance. Mm -hmm. Uh, No doubt he drew a lot of young females toward him. (laughs) He was a very talented individual. He was musically inclined to play piano. He was an overall individual. So he could put his hand to anything at the time. And even when he came back from T College, he had looked into the future in respect of farming. And uh, with Aokuru, they never truly met eye to eye because he had obviously looked at the future and how best, when farming was done in those days, how he could improve on it.
4: Mm. And, and you know, it's the natural parent child relationship. But- test, you know, the younger one's telling the older one what to do, and um, he certainly had a lot of girlfriends. I can count on, you know, I'm filling up two hands now, the number of women who have, and even their children have come up and said to me, my mother, and I told them, don't tell me, don't.
3: He was like a magnet.
4: Yeah, he certainly was a very, very charming man. There's one story that mum told me is that he did actually meet one woman that he, you know, decided, and it's in his diary, that he wanted to marry her. She was the one. So he brought her home to meet his family and to meet Nanny and Kōroa. And I said to mum, what was it like? She said, it was awful. And I said to her, why? She said, well, to dad, she was persona non grata. And to mum... She was very cool, which I found very surprising because our grandmother was a very warm, loving woman and nobody would have ever thought that of Nanny. I said, why did they do that? She said, goodness me, this was their son. Mm -hmm.
3: Treasure. He was a taonga.
4: He was, absolutely. And it was a great loss, not only for Māori, but there are Pākehā who told me the same thing. Oh, yes, Have yes. said the same thing. Mm. He would have been a great leader for Māori, and he would have led them. And he said, it's such a loss. Mm. But, you know, he, he was... Um, I don't know if he was ever doomed to come back here, do you? Because Mum said that his goal after the war was to be a test pilot, so yes, he would have yes. had to go back to England to do yeah. that.
3: You see, even yeah. when he was at uh, Te College... And as a top academic, he had his sights set further afield.
4: Right. Mm.
3: And so his aspirations were to reach for the sky,
4: Mm.
3: and he reached for that.
4: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So
1: how old was he when he was killed? In his late 20s.
3: Late 20s. Mm. So in that short period of his life, he saw a lot, experienced a lot. But more importantly, when the Gestapo had caught them, and as Hari alluded to earlier during this interview, that when they were rounded up and he was shot, and you'll see it in the documentary, he took the blindfold off to face these killers. And so one could perhaps think that whoever is going to shoot me, I'll implant my face into your spirit, his executors. And that's only a thought uh, that uh, I myself was thinking.
4: Because we had always been brought up to believe that when they shot the escaped prisoners, the orders were given out, that they allowed them. And it has been shown on several uh, documentaries and uh, written about that they got the prisoners to get out and go and relieve themselves out of the vehicles that they were travelling in. According to research done for the documentary, um, Johnny and them were given the option of having a blindfold or not, him and the other four or five that were in, that were executed at the same time. And the other man uh, close to New Zealand, as such, was Albert Hake, And they chose to take off the blindfold. Now, I didn't know this until they interviewing me for the doco, and that's the one time that I actually lost it. And it was... It was for them, you know, when Julian asked, how do you think your grandparents would have felt? And I said to him, they would have been extremely proud of him. That's to know that he looked them in the eye. He never backed down. He... It just, you know, amazes me. His great grandmother metapire poor hair was a warrior she was a, a, a in a war party she traveled in a war party and so i believe that that whole i hate to use the term warrior gene oh, but genetics. genetics that that spirit Inherent. was alive and well in him until the mm. end so as a generation that followed
1: i mean has that been Something that you've carried.
4: Oh, we've always got well, battles to fight. In our, most definitely. in our individual
3: ways. But at at the end of the day, it's all about supporting each other as a whānau. And that's most important. Oh.
4: Yeah, yeah, I think, you know, Yeah, we've... <sighs> When the fight for your lands and what is right, of course it continues on. Um but in carrying it on to war or something,
3: uh oh. yeah.
4: You know, Juani's had two sons go into the military and we've had various other relatives. But I mean Johnny Johnny was um had three f- cousins, his first cousins, died. Yes. They were members of the Māori Battalion. And one of the letters he writes home, he talks about getting a letter from... Um, the, oh, not a letter, sorry, the newspaper from New Zealand House, and he reads the dispatches in there, and he reads that his cousin, um, Matthew Pinair has been killed. I think it was at Monte Casino. I, mm. I don't remember where yes. it was. And, and, you know, he says in the letter, he writes... I sat down in the park, in Hyde Park, and cried like a baby because I felt for Auntie Moari, his mother's sister. This was her son. So our family, and like all of Māori families during World War Two, were very much, and like all Pākehā families too, were very much affected by the war. And do you carry it on? Mm, I don't know. Now, in Kepa's essay, he wrote that
1: um and I'm gonna paraphrase somewhat and summarise a little bit here Keeper that war is a leveller. That it it creates um equality amongst amongst men on the battlefield, right? Now the the memorials here in Taihabe are they full of names of Māori and
4: Pākehā names? Yes, at the school gates, it is everybody from Taihape that was killed in the Second World War, be it Māori or Pākehā.
3: It was a fairly close community, and yet one can understand uh, why, particularly Taihape. And even flying through to our relations up in Ōhakune, uh, so... It's a fairly close community.
1: And how is Anzac Day marked
4: here? It's the, in Taihape they have the usual dawn ceremony. Um, and there's no Māori ser- ceremony, but there is a Māori day.
3: Māori they have a Māori service. And that's when our Kuron kui, kuiya, used to go to attend Anzac service, the Māori service. And that was their time of, you know, thinking back. And so they had that close relationship, even with our other cousins who served with the 2-8. Now, one thing Hari did mention about Uncle Johnny's cousin, Matt Pene, Johnny had made a comment, I think, how proud he was of the 2-8 battalion. And he saw it as his part of his journey and experience during the during the war to give something back to our people on the ground
4: and and in his letters when he talks about it which is the thinking of the time and I think it's um, you talk about in Keppers essay it being a great level war wars a great level of, on on the battlefield for men that are fighting and I think that that's absolutely right because Johnny talks about – this is an interesting thing that Johnny talks about, which today would upset a lot of people. But back then when he writes, he said he's fighting for king and for country. Yeah. And they all did. They, they all, all were, fought mm. for king and for country. And, I mean, I don't know if we'd do that today. But it's, it's an interesting thing, War. I know. Remember that time when they interviewed Nanny and Kota in the Whanganui Chronicle? Yes. And they were furious about that reporter because he had reported them as saying they wanted an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's not no, actually that what they true. meant. No. That wasn't true. No. He had twisted it. Done so a this, bit is, of a after, um, this is after Uncle Johnny had died? This Uncle Johnny died. This would have been in the early 60s when they wrote that article because it was not long before Nanny died.
3: Well, that reporter misconstrued everything in respect yes, of our old people's thinking. And I think it also was seen as an insult to our Uncle Johnny.
0: Oh.
3: So that's why I mentioned earlier about the manner of us as a people.
4: You know, talking about Johnny and his, him as a person, um, what's, uh, Tom Thompson, who was the young gunner in the plane that Johnny <clears throat> was flying, when they get shot at and hit and um, I asked him what happened and he said well the bullets had hit their plane and anyway he was up in the back of the plane and Johnny was flying it and they went into a nosedive and I, I said my goodness what was that like and he said well you didn't really have time to think about it but we were hurtling towards earth at an alarming rate and he said so I just thought and he said, and then, you know, they dropped so many thousand feet or something. He said, next thing, the plane leveled out. And <laughs> I knew that we were going to be all right because Johnny was flying the plane. And I thought, my God, what an amazing feeling it must have been to be, you know, you, you're Screaming down, and that was, and Johnny had done that to put the fires out in the engine, mm-hmm. and he'd got them out, and then he leveled the plane off, and then they land in the sea. He lands his plane in the middle of the night in the in the sea.
1: That's intimate knowledge of your craft, eh? It is, yeah.
4: it is. And Tom Thompson, that was, it was interesting to hear it from his point of view like being in there and because he couldn't get out of the plane because where it had hit him he was like trapped in there It shrapnel had hit him and it was uh, you have to have so much faith in the person flying it but then you know <laughs> well, and did. that for me i said to him you know if only you had been alive or our grandparents had been alive mm-hmm. to hear you say this they would have just Oh, been so proud of him, you know, just... To, he said, I knew when it leveled, and then the, the plane's hurtling down and then it levels off, and I know we're going to be fine. Johnny's flying the plane.
3: Well, he was a Canadian.
4: And he, he's in the docker, and he actually mm. came out for the screening. Well, he was the last surviving screening. member of yes. his crew. Mm. Mm. So there you go. But he talked
3: about his exploits with the women... Oh yes, he did. He said he was the life of the party. Yeah,
1: play the guitar, mm. sing a song. I don't
4: know whether he <laughs> played a guitar.
1: Yeah. He certainly he played, played the piano. piano. Oh, no. play the piano, sing yeah. a song.
4: <laughs> yes, he certainly played the, the girls,
1: piano. And Isle's fluttering.
4: You know, and he, when he's a prisoner of war and has led his letters home from Starlock Free, he's writing about this girl, this Parker, that's trying to get her hooks into him.
3: Oh, well, that was Margaret.
4: Yeah, and, um, you know, it, it's it's funny, it's interesting, and, and uh, he talks about, yeah, he talks about other little things. And when he's trying to get little messages back, he writes them in Māori, not a, a, a whole sentence in Māori, but he'll say, don't believe what they're saying, it's tittle, <laughs> So they wouldn't know what he means, you know, yeah.
1: Because I think um, movies have done have done their deed in making us think that there aren't protocols that uh, when you're a prisoner of war, you know, like you are allowed to write letters, you do receive Red Cross parcels, you know, um, and, I mean, that was a revelation to me because I thought, I think this is all based on – I know this is all based on movies – that I oh, know they all get locked up and you never hear from them again. But no, there
4: are actual protocols that they follow through. And the interesting thing about being a prisoner <laughs> of war is that another man who is in Waikanae, um, Bill, he told me that life in a POW camp is like life outside. I said, well, how can that be? You're all prisoners of war. And he said it's exactly the same in that life goes on. They had lawyers, uh, because all the officers were in Starlight Golf 3, and so they had um, people who were officers uh, that were engineers, lawyers, doctors, the whole nine yards. They were professional people, and they were taught to think. You know, They had to think. And he said... "Um, Life went on in the sense that men would receive letters, their wives were divorcing them, and, you know, how did they cope with that? They were having babies at home, and all of this was just like life, imitated life to a certain degree on the outside. Your life went on, even though you were in a camp. So it's that was a, a, an amazing thing for me, that actually people would actually mm. divorce you while you were a POW. <laughs>
3: Well, see, the, the Red Cross were receiving of uh, letters and also passes from the Red Cross was perhaps due to the Geneva Convention, and so th- there was a, another leveler to give them some vo- form of humanity. And back in the
4: but they did look forward to. Oh, Bill they told did. me that they mm. really looked forward to those Red Cross passes because they yeah. didn't have a lot of food. No. no.
1: And the Red Cross parcels, you know, um, they'd they'd receive them weekly. And uh, the little bit of soap or the little bit of kai would see them through. Mm.
4: And the books, they had a library and stuff like that. He said, yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing what the old guy told me. I just never saw that in happening. Then there were other things he told me about being a prisoner of war and what they did and how they coerced the Germans, the guards and everything else. It was incredible.
1: And how they take off. They'd be able to actually leave the camp and go Mm. out partying in the local village. And how they got the stuff. Unbelievable. Mm. So from just talking with um, you both this afternoon, were you able to piece together a lot of
4: your uncle's life through the diaries, through the letters? For me personally... What I was, I had always been able to piece together his personal life up to the point of his leaving New Zealand because mum talked about it as them children growing up. I mean, he grew up in this house here. He shared a bedroom with both his grandfathers, his Ropoamapuhe and spoke Māori, so, you know, Mum said he was a very quiet and gentle man and so was George Graham, our grandmother's father. But George Graham taught him how to play canasta and and uh, 500 and stuff and so he would play cards with him and gamble with him and Mum said you would hear them arguing at <laughs> night, you know, this grandfather and grandson. <laughs> and so and the funny thing is that when Johnny writes... Back home, he's on the ship going to war, and in Canada and in England, and stuff. He's running poker games, <laughs> so he must have learnt that from his grandfather.
3: <laughs> well, Alcora was a great um, gambler—cards, racehorses, you name it.
4: But did he have time to teach him, though? You know, you know, when you're a parent, you're too busy being a parent. Whereas when you're a grandparent, you've got time to do things.
1: Just leading your mokafuna. Teaching them skills, life skills.
3: Well, that's what it was all about, life skills, and that's why they survived in the manner in which they did when they became um, prisoners, prisoners of war. Mm. And it's no different now, even like as you both alluded to about in Kepa's writings about a leveller. It's no different to the Vietnam veterans, to what they experienced. So they relied upon each other as a you
1: In your Vietnam views? No, no.
3: But Kepa has met a few of the Vietnam vets back home in Waganui. And so prior to his departing, he's visiting a couple of the retirement homes tomorrow with the Vietnam vets and to read, you know, extracts of his essay. And so the RSA members down there are very proud of him in terms of what he's achieved. And more importantly, his own personal and emotional ties in having put that, as mm-hmm. essay together and having that appreciation of others. And I think he alludes that to the wars after first, second and coming through. And so at the end of the day, like he has indicated, it's a good leveller. And even though the Vietnam vets and the veterans will accept and recognise that, they said it was just a waste of time. But however, they served for country and more importantly, themselves. So it's a good indicator as to a young person's thinking, which is very mature in many respects for a person of so young an age.
4: I think also too that for Johnny, he was very proud of the fact that he was a Māori, but he never saw the need to wear that on his sleeve. He was what he was, and that was a Māori. Do you think that's a time <coughs> that's that time though, honey? Um, I I don't know, to tell you the truth. I do know that um, our grandparents had brought their children up to believe that they were as good as anybody else and that they could be and do anything that they wanted, if they wanted to, that there was nobody better than them. They were as as good as anybody else. And, in fact, education was a a major in their lives. Nanny and Kuro believed in education for their children and they absolutely pushed it. And these kids were all taught, although Kuro may have disagreed with the... Um, various religions that had come out and settled in New Zealand and, you know, like he said, were preaching with the Bible and stealing our land with the other, he still saw that as an opportunity to educate his children. (laughs) And so he took full advantage of it. <laughs> and our grandmother had been educated by the Presbyterians at and Marty Girl School. And so my uh, the eldest one, Hari, went there and then our mother mm-hmm. went to and Marty Girl School. And in fact, Nanny was the school ducks of Tudokina in nineteen hundred and eight. And then Johnny went to Teati. So he wasn't averse to using it mm. to to, mm-hmm. you know, get what he needed for his children. And um, you know, they, they all certainly had a good education, no doubt about it. And, and you know, they learned, uh, they had piano lessons, they learnt classical piano, classical music, Harry played the violin, mum and Johnny and played the piano, so they were all well-rounded and well-schooled. And here we have
1: it, the essay referred to in that korero that got Keapa, hi pāngo to the 2010 and commemorations at Gallipoli. The Fano indulged me and took turns reading it. His Huani, Meripaya, kiepa, Hari, and Raul.
3: They
2: shall
1: not grow up as we the left grow up.
2: Stop for a moment. Glance around. Absorb your surroundings. Watch as that stereotypical Kiwi bloke swaggers confidently past and smile at the way his wife keeps him in check. Listen closely for that rising intonation at the end of a sentence, and that casual kelda, a greeting, a colloquialism, spoken now with acceptance. Shared with acceptance more than an shared with acceptance more than it has ever been. Perhaps a Perhaps signalling a transformation, an era of acceptance and embracement assimilated into New Zealand culture, like that of the Māori soldier bearing arms for the first time in a world war alongside their New Zealand comrades at Kalipari. Aotearoa New Zealand, take a deep breath of that fresh, clean air that envelops you, the air that is shared by a common, unified people, New Zealanders. Prior to the First World War, New Zealand was merely a country a self-governing political entity, strongly under the sword, pen and might of the British crown. During this time, hostilities from significant racial conflicts were occurring, and this was effectively cementing a divide between Māori and Pākehā. At the turn of the century, beneath the facade of a country full of opportunity, there were apparent social problems simmering. It would take a significant upheaval and battle to bring these tensions into a different perspective. Consequently, New Zealand's involvement in the First World War, and particularly the Gallipoli Campaign, was the catalyst required to remedy the situation, not only overseas on the battlefields, but at home where people were struggling to establish a sense of identity.
4: I
1: shall not weary them, nor the years condemn.
2: When Great Britain declared its intent for war, New Zealand, as a colonised country, followed its mother nation, heartily and wholly aligning with mother England, and gave her service of loyal duty and citizen in war. April 25th, 1915. Today this date, synonymous with Australia, is recognised as Anzac Day. April 25th marks in Heralds and Sadness the anniversary of the day in which members of the Australia-New Zealand Army Corps stormed the beaches at Gallipoli Peninsula, impassioned with fervour and fear, and blindly under the controversial British orders to attack and weaken the tactical stance of Austro-Hungary, Turkey and Germany in the war.
3: They went with songs to the battle. They were young, straight
1: of line, true of heart, steady and a clock.
3: The first commemorative ceremony was held in 1916. To remember the 2,721 fallen New Zealand soldiers from the Gallipoli campaign. Today, the purpose of this day is to honour still the Gallipoli campaign and herald our soldiers whilst also combining the spirit of feeling and commemoration with all those other returned servicemen and women who have fought for their country. Fallen or survivor of the Great War, or any and all other wars that have followed, Anzac Day is the day that we as a nation, young and old, ailing and robust, stand tall as a nation, remembering and honouring those New Zealanders who have lived, fought and died in the Great War and all other wars thereafter. The Gallipoli campaign can be considered a failed one, with regard to its military purpose in the war. Given hindsight, this failure was evident from the beginning of the campaign, where a navigational error caused the Anzac troops to beach in an area of overhanging cliffs. This not only rendered our troops vulnerable to offence but gave their opposition a significant defensive advantage. As such, the Allied troops who landed at Gallipoli suffered serious casualties over the eight-month operation. In particular, 2,721 New Zealanders died, nearly a quarter of all the New Zealanders who served at Gallipoli itself. This statistic is a significant contributor to the fact that New Zealand had one of the highest casualty rates per capita of any country who served in the war. They were staunch to the end, against odds, uncounted. They fell with their faces to the fall.
2: However, in its entirety, the Gallipoli Campaign was not a complete failure. It was a military catastrophe, but it consolidated New Zealand as a country in its infancy to foster and develop a sense of identity that allowed it to become a nation. With this, it is important to outline the distinct difference between a country and a nation. A country in its definition has no real depth. It is the mere geographic area of occupation. A nation, by definition, however, is much more meaningful. A nation is a community, a group of people who share a common culture, language and history.
4: The 19th century Bought about a lot of domestic conflict between the indigenous Māori and settling Pakeha. With this idea, the historical New Zealand wars that occurred from 1843 onwards spring to mind. It is commonly suggested that the main causes of these wars involved colonial settlement of the British, land disputes, and issues to do with the Treaty of Waitangi, and contest of sovereignty. In its brevity, one historian argues that New Zealand was no longer to be a place belonging to Māori, with space reserved for Pākehā. New Zealand was to be a place for Pākehā, and room now had to be found for Māori. This was contrary to what Māori had thought the treaty was all about, and they said so. Following these conflicts, it is reasonable to assume that the general relationship between Māori and Pākehā remained relatively hostile, and at this stage, the country of New Zealand did not have a situation whereby its inhabitants shared a common culture, language or positive history. As unfortunate as it was, it took an event like the First World War to establish a sense of unity between the Māori and Pākehā. The First World War saw the first instance, other than the Boer War, where New Zealand could contribute on a scale. And it took more than a 100,000 independent New Zealand soldiers overseas. It is appropriate to refer to the soldiers as independent because the, for the first time, Māori soldiers were able to serve in a major conflict with the Pākehā in the army. This is significant because at one stage it was British policy that an army was prohibited from having native soldiers. Some Māori chose not to support the British Crown in their war effort because of the wrongdoings they felt had been bestowed upon them and their communities in the previous century. However, one thing is certain the incorporation of Māori into the New Zealand Army deputation for the First World War was effectively the first step to establishing unity between the two competing races of New Zealand. The fact that these Māori and Pakeha under the delegation of the Anzac were so far away from home made them very aware of not only who they were, but from where they derived. There was a realisation that they shared a common purpose and the division that had previously occurred back home was dispelled on the battlefield. One Māori soldier, Te Rangihiroa, who served at Gallipoli, recorded in his diary that the valour portrayed by the Māori at Gallipoli
3: earned them Māori the respect and admiration of the British troops.
4: This union, formed on the basis of a common derivation and purpose, was also recognised and acknowledged by men from other nations. On the battlefield, the colour of someone's skin is irrelevant. It is the uniform that distinguishes the comrade from the enemy. The uniform donned by all New Zealand soldiers fighting in the war, be they Māori or Pākehā, distinguish them as New Zealanders full stop. Furthermore, the New Zealanders' uniform bore an insignia portraying a Kiwi, which was not only a representation of the soldiers' origination, but a symbol that differentiated them from their foreign companions. The symbol was predictably recognised by their comrades and was essentially where the term Kiwis for soldiers and eventually people of New Zealand originated. No longer was it a externally recognised that the Pākehā and Māori fought at Gallipoli as separate entities. It was the Kiwis who fought together, and as one, they fought valiantly.
1: At the going down of the sun and in the morning.
4: An identity forged amidst the heat of battle, it became a lasting legacy of the Gallipoli campaign. Additionally, the tragedy of it all laid a foundation of a more united New Zealand than ever before. Brothers in arms, all other differences aside when on the battlefield as Kiwi soldiers.
3: before this all happened, there was some sense of nationalism and identity present in New Zealand, though dormant and undeveloped, in spite of our geographical isolation World War one caused suffering on such a large scale that many, if not all, New Zealanders were affected, be they on the front line or alternatively the home front. The war did many things for the New Zealand identity and ultimately its society. It inspired New Zealanders alike to search within themselves for an individuality that separated them from the rest of the world and it encouraged New Zealanders to realise that in spite of their small population and geographical isolation, they were able to impact the rest of the world. The Kiwis at Gallipoli were the epitome of the latter. It was the New Zealand troops, a minority, who successfully captured Chunuk Bear, only to see it recaptured by the Turkish after a series of British mistakes. Incidents like this combined with the tragic defeat at Gallipoli, led New Zealanders to appreciate the fact that their sovereign country was fallible and subsequent to the war. Incidents like this, combined with the tragic defeat at Gallipoli, led New Zealanders to appreciate the fact that their sovereign country was fallible and subsequent to the war. New Zealanders admired the British less based on their own achievements in comparison.
2: Henceforth, where do we stand? The Kiwis of the 21st century. We are the legacy of the ANZAC. Gallipoli and the First World War in general were turning points in the history of our nation. Gallipoli was essentially the catalyst for the transformation of the country of New Zealand. However, the contributions of those who fought in subsequent wars cannot be overlooked, because although the First World War was a turning point, The wars following built on the change and eventually developed New Zealand into the autonomous and respectable nation it is now. And it is truly a nation when a people of diverse backgrounds share an experience of such adverse proportion and impact that they put their differences aside to converge for that greater common purpose and good in nationhood. Today, the New Zealand society is ever-changing and continues to evolve. We abide peacefully, not as a bicultural country of the past, but as a multicultural nation of the future. As devastating as it is, it took an event like Gallipoli and the deaths of thousands of our people for those at home to build in all senses of the word and eventually bring our society in New Zealand to what it is today. This is aptly illustrated in the words of the author Arthur Golden. Adversity is like a strong wind. It tears away from us all but the things that cannot be torn so that we see ourselves as we really are. It is our duty now to honour the sacrifices made by not only those who fought and died in the Gallipoli campaign, but those who contributed to subsequent conflicts. It is also our duty to carry the Anzac spirit to the next generation, so that the sacrifice of those who fought is not forgotten. This is our duty because although, as a generation distant from these time periods of warfare, we may not realise the significance of these sacrifices, the evidence is all around us. That kiwi bloke strutting past at the discretion of his missus, that rising intonation and casual Kyoto, and finally, that fresh New Zealand air that wears one true nation share. We will remember them
1: there are photos of the whānau at radionz.co.nz forward slash and a photo of John Pohe himself. In the essay, Kipper wrote how he felt the First World War had Māori and Pakia standing side by side together as one for the first time. But let's not forget there were many iwi who refused to enter the First World War despite the efforts of Apirana Nata through the Pioneer Battalion. This was largely due to the fact Māori were, a generation ago, fighting against the Crown and various land wars raging through the country. Tainui iwi, for instance. Te Puia encouraged her people not to go to the First World War, and again in the Second World War, as long as land grievances were going on. And one of their allies, Tuhoi as well, discouraged their people from entering the First World War. By the time the Second World War rolled around, it was a different story, as the many Māori names on war memorials around the country can attest. Pro Moana Nui Nārimu, has a number of education scholarships named in his honour, which is how I learned about him when I wrote an essay when I was 17 years old. He is also the first Māori soldier awarded the Victoria Cross posthumously after the Second World War for his efforts in 1943 in the battlefield.
6: The citation reads, Second Lieutenant Narimu commanded a platoon in an attack upon the vital hill feature 209. He was given a task of attacking and capturing an under feature, forward of point 209 itself, and held in considerable strength by the enemy. He led his men with great dash and determination, straight up the face of the hill, undeterred by the intense mortar and machine gun fire which was causing considerable casualties. Displaying courage and leadership of the highest order, he was himself first on the hill crest, personally annihilating in the process at least two enemy posts. In the face of such a determined attack, the remainder of the enemy fled. But further advance was impossible as the reverse slope was swept by machine-gun fire from point 209 itself. Under cover of a most intense mortar barrage, the enemy counter-attacked, in an attempt to regain their dug-in positions. Second Lieutenant Narimu ordered his men to stand up and engage the enemy man for man. This they did with such good effect that the attackers were mown down, Second Lieutenant Narimu personally killing several. During this encounter, he was twice wounded, once by rifle fire in the shoulder and later by shrapnel in the leg and though urged by both his company commander and battalion commander to go out of the line, he refused to do so, saying that he should stay a little while with his men. Darkness found this officer and his depleted platoon lying on the rocky face of the forward slope of the hill feature, with the enemy in a similar position on the reverse slope, about 20 yards distant. Time and again throughout the night, the enemy launched fierce attacks in an attempt to dislodge Narimu and his men, but each counter-attack was beaten off entirely by this officer's inspired leadership. During one of these counter-attacks, the enemy, by using hand grenades, succeeded in piercing a certain part of the line. Without hesitation, Narimu rushed to the threatened area, and those of the enemy he did not kill he drove back with stones and with his Tommy gun. During another determined counterattack by the enemy, part of his line broke. Calling out orders and encouragement, he went to his dislodged men, rallied them, and led them in a fierce onslaught back into their old positions. All through the night, between attacks, he and his men were heavily harassed by machine gun and mortar fire but 2nd Lieutenant Narimu watched his line very carefully, cheering his men on and inspiring them by his gallant personal conduct. Morning found him still in possession of the hill feature, but only he and two unwounded other ranks remained. Reinforcements were sent up to him. In the morning, the enemy again counter-attacked, and it was during this attack that 2nd Lieutenant Narimu died. He was killed on his feet, defiantly facing the enemy with his Tommy gun at his hip. And as he fell, he came to rest almost on top of those enemy who had fallen to his gun just before he fell to theirs. The hill feature that this officer had so gallantly defended was strewn with enemy dead and was a bold witness of his great courage and fortitude. And here with the Maori Battalion, a few hours after the announcement, we are able to introduce the officer commanding, Colonel K.A. Keha, for a short message to New Zealanders, Maori and Pakeha, on this proud occasion in the battalion's history.
7: By the grace of God, it is my most honoured privilege to speak for the late 2nd Lieutenant Moana Nuiakua Ngairimou whose epic and heroic action has been graciously acknowledged by His Majesty the King in the bestowal of the Victoria Cross. To his father and mother, to all his friends in New Zealand, and to his comrades in arms, no matter where they are, I can in all faithfulness say of him, no more gentlemanly soldier than he ever stood in the ranks of the Maori Battalion. He rose through the ranks and won recognition through the sterling qualities of his own commendable good nature. For 18 months he served as a private and fought in Greece and Crete, but his outstanding conduct and devotion to duty brought him his just promotion. Today he lies on the Matmata hills in Tunisia, beside his men who were defiant unto death. All of them we honor and owe tribute, but greater still, he has given his people, his own Maori race, this most coveted decoration, for the first time in all its history. We share the honor with all our Pākehā fellow soldiers of the New Zealand Division, and I have been made to understand that this award marks the second ever awarded to an officer of the New Zealand Division either in this war or the Great War of 1914-1918. He has gone on ahead of us but his spirit survives and especially among all ranks of his battalion this spirit will re- remain a living inspiration.
6: That was Colonel Keha commanding the battalion and now the V.C.'s former company commander, Captain P. Awateri, addresses especially the Maori people. The fearless courage of Moana Narimu, of the Aotango Mati people, sub-tribe of Puroa, has earned for himself the personal honour of the highest military award and bestowed upon the whole Maori people the distinction of the First Victoria Cross to a member of their battalion. The news is received here by the Maori battalion, where I speak to you with profound respect towards the memory of Narimu, who died in the action on point 209 in the Tobaga Gap. The whole fighting there called for extreme resolution in one of the bitterest engagements the New Zealanders have experienced. This infantry attack on the height dominating the Hammer Plains prepared the way for the combined breakthrough of armour and infantry under General Freiburg, which broke the merit position. The Maori battalion's part in the initial assault is now specially marked by the singular bravery of this young soldier. Lieutenant Narimou fought in Greece and Crete, and there, as a private, showed something of the rare qualities of leadership which later inspired his conduct when he was commissioned in Africa. In one incident of the Greece-Crete campaign, his platoon commander and NCOs all became casualties. Immediately, he assumed command, and though wounded three times, continued undaunted in the resolute manner which marked the gallant action at Tobaga. This characteristic of purposeful determination was predominant in the superb conduct of Moana Narimu Quoted in the citation, which is one of the finest narratives of action and courage yet recorded.
5: Hereo mo rehu no te hoko atu matauenga, ega hapu, ngaiwi, ngamana, ngareo, nga te mata korero aotearoa te wai pounamu, tēnā te Tēnā koutou ngā kai o ngā waka, ngā kanohi ora o tātou tūpuna, koriro kei pō. Tēnā te heranga waka o ngā tikanga, o te mauri, o mā. Tēnā koutou te tangimaina ki kio tātou parekura ngā pakanga nei, me nei, ki ngā mōrehu o to nā kua mōe. Tēnei o uri i toa ki ngā hiwi o kirihi, kiriti, ki mānia o ihipa, ki ngā tuafenua o ripia, o teripori, ki ngā maunga teitei o tūnihia. I hingarātou tū i te wahioteriri, te hikoi o te wae, i te te taiha, I te kori a tūmatauenga. He ngātou hetoa, ana mairā hetoa. Tēnā koutou, tēnei kia kōrero a au, Te Tairawhiti. Te Tairawhiti. E mātou mātua o o tūnihia, nui ia wangarimu rātou kua ana tamariki. He, pō, he ao, te, te hiwi he mo rehu kawe te kupukiuta. He hunga kei rā i te te ahu o mātou katoa te hunga hinga te hunga i ora. kwa matau korero, kwa matau tangi ke rā i. O tira koa pakue nga topi te fao te ao te Victoria ko Huma i te wa ki tu te mai ti ki a te moana he tohu tēnei ka whāki i te a ngā tūpuna nāna te nei. Nā kei kokai, kei puputa, kei te ona pā i raro i te taumaru maru o ta nā o hikurangi. O te rā he taonga nuirawa tēnei koriro nei yaia he hei atafai mā iwi, hei honore hoki ki te maori katoa. Āno te ahua, ko tēnei te tanga. te hiatotanga O te rongo toa, o te Māori, i tūria i a ngā tamariki o te motu, te hoariri tēnei wāroa. Hāmuera rāu a komaraia, ma te roa ngārimu. tēnā koutou i tātātou tamaiti, ā rāi te tamaiti te Māori katoa. E api, tēnā hoki koe pupuri mai nā i te ahotanga e tūai te mahi E te kite atu koe iroto i ngā tuātea, i ngā haupukeri o te wā. Anā i a kāpene tai e pan nā ngā kōrero mō ngā tamariki. A kua hoatue au kia te wānanga te ariki, a kua paku kōrero nei, kia koe. Kei a heoi anō no kua te wakai ngā te mate anui nā kua painga nei tēnei ngā kinga tuatai. Kia ora koutou katoa.
1: Gallantry and bravery are always words thrown around this time of the year, but let's not forget sorrow and sadness either, and the true horror of war. I'm Maria Rakaku, and you're with Teahi on Radio New Zealand National. I'm going to talk about de Kruger now. He died in December and was from Ruatuki. Paula fought alongside my koro, Whare, whose nickname was Smokey who I never knew, he died when I was one, and when he met me, he asked me if I was his grandchild. Of course, I said yes, and then looked at him, thinking, how did he know? I've just met you. But that's the thing with the old folks like Polder and that generation in their 70s and 80s, or even older, they had an uncanny ability of connecting the younger generation up with the people they knew and theirs, that we've become a little disconnected from in our world today. Every year, the twenty-eighth Māori Battalion hold their annual Their numbers have diminished. Over the past year, the following have died: Tū Te Wehi Wehi Kingi, B Company;
0: Henry Sunny Mitchell, B Company; Eric Henry, D Company; Maru Murphy, B Company; Kingi Hated, D Company. Jack Marker, A Company. Hoturangi Toto, C Company. Paula Kruger, B Company. Robert Rue Henry, D Company. Keith Fayapu, D Company. James Leslie Randall, D Company. Takamuana Bill Delamere, C Company. Raka, B Company.
1: And while this te has focused primarily on World War II and World War I, let's not forget about the other campaigns. Vietnam, Korea, Singapore, East Timor, Afghanistan, Falkland Islands, Kuwait and Iraq. E te iwi, ko a ki te wā te aroha ki nā kai kōrero Ki te whanua John Pohe, tēnā koutou nga mihi. Ki te whanua nga hoia i naia nei, tēnā koutou. Hoki mai hei tera tapu mā, mai te ahikā kia tātou katoa,